Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today, and we're brought to you by ExpressVPN. Jim, our good martini does not usually involve, hey, look at this Democrat who's running for this prestigious office. But when you've had seven years of the debacle that is Bill de Blasio as the mayor of New York City, blissfully, he cannot run for a third term. So with an open seat, there are a variety of people running. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams and the City Comptroller Scott Stringer, you know, two household names here for us on the Three Martini Lunch. Uh, I just saw that former Obama Housing Secretary Sean Donovan got in the race. But the name that's intriguing here, Jim, and I don't know if he'd be a good mayor, I'm not even sure he lives in New York, but let's just leave that aside for a second. Andrew Yang is seriously looking at this. This is a guy who ran for president, hung around much longer than uh, most people expected. But uh, Andrew Yang is calling elected officials, according to Politico, to gauge support for a possible bid to become New York City's next mayor. He championed a plan to provide all Americans, of course, with that $1,000 monthly stipend, the universal basic income. We don't really like that too much. But uh, he's doing pretty well in hypothetical polls. And we know how much we love polls right now. But 20% of respondents in a crowded field said that Yang would be their top pick if it were held today, while 14% listed Adams and 11% named Stringer. Uh, Congressman Max Rose, who just got beat, he used to represent Staten Island, likes to cuss a lot on Twitter. Uh, he's only at 6%. So uh, I don't know if Andrew Yang's going to ultimately do this, Jim, but uh, I think he made a pretty good first impression. So we'll see if he actually does this. It could actually make the race something worth watching. Yeah, this is not quite the three martini lunch podcast endorsement of Andrew Yang. It's simply an acknowledgement that as far as Democrats go, he's a kind of intriguing guy who is not running around with a partisan axe to grind. And, you know, what I, I don't really love his idea for a universal basic income, the freedom dividend, as he calls it. Um, but the guy had like a million and one different policy proposals. He clearly had thought about these sorts of things. And he just didn't go through, he brought up to topics like, uh, Obviously, he was focused on automation and how it was going to affect working people for, for you know, years and decades to come. Discussed autism, uh, in, you know, with this sort of topic that doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention from presidential candidates. And he just was an interesting guy. And it was kind of refreshing to have a guy whose every statement wasn't carefully calibrated of how can I maximize my partisan advantage? How can I convince everybody that Republicans and people who disagree with me are the worst people in the world? You know, Yang seemed to want to be a coalition builder. And you could see the kind of people who followed him were kind of, wasn't a lot, but, but it was kind of you know, interesting strands of different people. Some from the tech community, some people who just wanted somebody who was kind of independent, a uh, couple celebrities here and there. And one of the things that I think, by the way, Greg, I did look it up. He's lived in New York City, I believe in Hell's Kitchen um, for most of his life. So oh, okay, he's always yeah. had a residency. He meets the residency requirements, all that kind of stuff. I can have problems with the outsider candidates who look at government and say, this stuff should be easy and decides to step into it and, you know, runs the play and has, runs into all kinds of problems because they don't know it. I can have problems with the Mike Bloomberg's of the world who are so wealthy that they simply uh, step into elected office and purchase, you know, buy out anyone who really represents a serious problem or obstacle to them. But there's a certain type of politician in New York city. I suppose you can find this in almost any big city, but in New York, they're particularly, 
uh, craven. This idea that, look, New York City politics are, are pretty dirty, pretty nasty. It's all, obviously you know, always been a heavily Democratic city. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was kind of an interesting interruption in that pattern. A lot of ethnic politics, a lot of, you know, uh, interest groups, a lot of, you know, uh, back scratching, log rolling, you know, all, all the stuff that makes urban politics make your skin crawl. And if you look at the state of the city and how bad, the, sh the bad shape that it's in and the bad circumstances, the lack of leadership from Bill de Blasio, who, by the way, notice the number of times the New York Times will write about him and how he runs late. And there's an interesting, there's a subtext there that de Blasio and the times he's gone to the gym and the number, you know, all that, that there's a certain character to de Blasio that he doesn't actually like the job of being mayor. He kind of finds it a pain in the neck. He finds dealing with people kind of a pain in the neck. His own staff can't count, can't stand him, including his former health commissioner, who was no prize herself when you go back and look at what she was saying at the early days of the pandemic. But de Blasio is a particularly exactly the wrong kind of personality and the wrong leader at a, at a time like this. And you look at, you know, where did Bill de Blasio come from? Well, you know, he was on the New York City Council from 2002 to 2009. After that, he was the New York City public advocate from 2010 to 2013. In other words, he is of the New York City public government system. And you don't, you know, if you don't like what you're getting, you're going to have to make a change. I don't know if Andrew Yang would be a miracle worker for New York City. I do know that New York City needs, if not a miracle, then a really significant change. And some other longtime city official probably isn't going to give you the significant change that you need. So we'll see how it shakes out, Greg. But, uh, you know, Yang at least gives us something to kind of be intrigued about in this race instead of just, you know, a different flavor of more of the same. No, that's true. Jim, you grew up uh, in the shadows of New York City. You grew up in New Jersey. Um, when Rudy Giuliani won in 1993, the city was in horrific shape. Uh, so he defeated David Dinkins, and Dinkins died recently. I find it interesting that all the headlines were about how he was the first black mayor, not about how he was a total train wreck and led the nation in murders per year. So uh, that was uh, fascinating to watch. But as you think about what New York was like in 1993 and compare it to where it stands now, my instinct is that it was still slightly worse then, but what's your read? It's an interesting question because you're, you're probably correct. Um, and it may be that my perception of it is affected by age and time. I grew up in a small town that was probably about 30 miles from New York City. My dad worked in the city. He'd take the train in every day. Uh, we'd go in to visit him on a fairly regular basis. And everything from the squeegee men who would take damp newspapers and claim they were cleaning your window, uh, your car window at a busy intersection, uh, the graffiti on the New York City subways, crime. I mean, you, you didn't go to New York City, into Central Park at night in New York City in the 80s and early 90s. Good heavens, you know, you, it was, you're almost asking to get killed if you did that. Sometimes if you watch New York City movies or movies and television shows set in New York City in the 80s and 90s. It is a, a bold reminder of how much muggings were just considered part of the existence in New York City. And thankfully, the crime, even as bad as it's been lately, hasn't quite gotten back to that. And again, like things like this, the, the, there was a lot of visual reminders of uh, why the city was getting starting to get nicknamed the Rotten Apple. Uh, everything from homeless people urinating and defecating on sidewalks to uh, crack pipes under your feet, hypodermic needles, you know, all, all these horror stories that made New York City, um, it's always been a great city, but it was an exceptionally challenged city in the Ed Koch and David Dinkins years. And I, I say that as a guy who generally kind of liked Ed Koch. Um, 
Now, I, I think the, the big difference between now and then is that at least back then, for all the problems the city had, and it had a lot of problems, there was still something of a middle class in the New York City area. Um, I think somebody said that during the Bloomberg years, that New York City was becoming a place that was good for you if it, you were very rich or very poor. But the middle class, which had always had a tough time living in the city, moved beyond the outer boroughs and had basically begun into you know, the outer suburbs or left the New York City you know, area in, entirely. Um, interestingly, probably I'd say a big difference between then and now is that back then it was Manhattan or it was nothing. Uh, Bronx was the Bronx Zoo. That Beyond Yankee Stadium, it was considered, you know, uh, crime-ridden and poor and, and having all kinds of urban problems. Um, and now Brooklyn, I think, is now, you know, the, the apex hipster <laughs> uh, location of all that stuff. And arguably, in some people's minds, maybe even cooler than, than Manhattan. I guess probably there's one other really important difference between uh, the 1980s and now, Greg. And it's that back in the 1980s, New York City had two professional football teams. <laughs> And one of them, at least for part of the 80s, uh, played in New York City. It was your team, actually. Actually, um, no, they both played in, in what they insisted upon calling Giants Stadium, although those of us on the, who root for the Jets called it the Meadowlands. Well, I, guess, I guess they played in Shea till like the early 80s. So, yeah. They did. Yes, I do remember that uh, with Richard Todd and Freeman McNeil. And yes. The New wow. York Sack Exchange. The glory days, Jim. But one thing has changed for sure for the worse since 1993, and that's the likelihood of a non-Democrat actually being elected mayor of New York City. Rudy Giuliani pulled it off twice in the 90s. I don't think a Republican could probably do it again, maybe, depending on who the person was, but I think it's highly unlikely. And so you got to find the least crazy Democrat in these situations. And uh, given the way New York City politics has gone lately, Andrew Yang may be just that. But we'll keep an eye on it. Could be interesting to watch. All right. Another thing to keep an eye on is how much big tech knows about you based on your online activity. Does it make sense that uh, the same company that controls half of online retail also just eavesdrops on your private conversations or uh, that one company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Well, it's time to fight back and you can do that with ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, every video you watch, every message you send gets tracked and data mined. They are watching you, just like Sting from the police. <laughs> but when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and to sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you are protected. You know, as you were reading that up top, Jim, I had the exact same idea of the police singing this. Every <laughs> site you click. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, that that uh, song comes on a lot on one of the DC uh, eighty stations. That's a really creepy song. It's excellent music, but it's a really, really <laughs> creepy stalker song. anthem. Yeah, but that's kind of what uh, big tech does to you. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN you can trust to keep you safe online. Visit expressvpn.com/martini. That's e x p r e s s. 
vpn.com slash martini to get three extra months free. We can get you three extra months free with that URL. Expressvpn.com slash martini right now to learn more. All right, Jim, so we're intrigued by Andrew Yang running potentially for the mayor of New York City. Uh, somebody else is running for office again, and let's just say we're less excited about that because we've dealt with this before. Terry McAuliffe, big friend of the Clintons, former chairman of the DNC, uh, failed gubernatorial candidate in Virginia in 2009. Unfortunately, a successful gubernatorial candidate in Virginia in uh, 2013. Uh, term limited in Virginia, you can only serve one term consecutively. So now, of course, we've got uh, the illustrious Governor Blackface, Ralph Northam, you can't run again. Virginia uh, governor's races are in the years after presidential elections, so we're just less than a year away from Election Day in Virginia. Terry McAuliffe is running for governor again, and he is going to be up against a pretty crowded Democratic field. There are two African-American women, CNN reporting, Delegate Jennifer Carroll Foy and State Senator Jennifer McClellan, as well as Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, uh, also uh, a black man. He's also the one who's been accused by two different women, both of them Democrats, I believe, of sexual assault. Uh, the attorney general, who also admitted to blackface, Mark Herring, has decided not to be in this race. Uh, Jim, this is a depressing enough field in and of itself in a state that's trending bluer and bluer. On the Republican side, up until a couple of weeks ago, there was exactly one Republican willing to run. That's uh, State Senator Amanda Chase. Then former Republican House Speaker Kirk Cox decided to throw his hat into the ring. So Chase is now going to run as an independent, which will split the non-democratic vote. So we got so much to look forward to with optimism in Virginia in the coming year. I, I was going to say, Greg, it's December 9th, 2020, and we're already looking with dread upon the gubernatorial <laughs> election of, of 2021 for hopes of a conservative Republican or even a, just a sane Republican. Um, obviously, you know, there's, we'll see how things shake out with Chase, but splitting the right of center vote very rarely works out well for the Republican candidate or any other right of center candidate. Um, by the way, I understand Republicans are going to hold their nominees by a convention again. We're not going to have a primary because we just don't want people, lots of people to vote in this. That uh, there's, and having, selecting nominees through a convention has never backfired on us before. Thank goodness, you know. It's always <laughs> great when you get, you know, a whole bunch of uh, activists in one room and uh, you're the one, you know, that's how they decide the nominee. Um, regarding McAuliffe, I, I think I, I greet his candidacy with dread, Greg, and I greet it with even greater disbelief that arguably he is the least embarrassing governor that Virginia has had <laughs> out of the last three. Bob McDonald, who I voted for and enthusiastically supported and thought was a terrific governor, had a really embarrassing uh, scandal of accepting gifts that he should not have and not disclosing them. Uh, very large amounts and you know, all kinds of other unsavory rumors and, and, and all of that. Um, and of course, we have Governor Blackface, uh, who is our current governor and who is thankfully not permitted, who, you know, a whole bunch of Democrats it call, you know, called upon him, on Governor Ralph Northam to resign. And then Ralph Northam kind of overcame them with this just unstoppable counter-argument that he didn't want to. And... Uh, <laughs> In light of that, most Democrats said, well, okay then, never mind. Um, and that's how he managed to, he basically left in part because there was no real will to do it. There's, the media covered it. We can't say the media didn't pay attention to this. There was a decent amount of outrage. It's just that once Northam said, I don't feel like resigning, everybody's like, well, okay, we'll, we'll just move on with our lives. Um, obviously the problems with Fairfax, 
uh, contributed to it, and the problems with the state attorney general contributed with it. And of course, we, we couldn't have all three statewide officials in, in Virginia leave Greg, because that would put the Republicans in charge. And that's way worse than having somebody who's worn a Klan hood or a black face, or both, for all we know, as our governor. You know, I can't say Terry McAuliffe was a terrible governor. I don't think he was a particularly great governor. I think my, one of the things I guess I worry about, Greg, is the idea that as far as I can tell, this is the first time anyone has ever been governor of, of Virginia, been term limited out, and said, boy, that was fun. I want to do that again. <laughs> I, I, you know, most of the time, Mark Warner went on to run for Senate. Tim Kaine went on to run for Senate. Usually you, you, you do one, one term as governor, and then you find something else to do with your life. And I guess Terry McAuliffe just doesn't. Maybe he thought he'd be serving in a Hillary Clinton administration right now, but so he's decided to go back. And I think uh, for all of his flaws, and they're considerable, I think Terry McAuliffe does everything in life with a exuberance and enthusiasm and certain uh, joyous appreciation of it. And I think that probably will play pretty well. I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up uh, getting the nomination again. And, you know, considering the way the rate that the state is turning, you'd say the Democrats are the odds on favorites to keep the governor's mansion now, you know, eight years ago, we were, uh, I'm sorry, I guess 12 years ago now, uh, Bob McDonnell had that landslide win. There was a significant backlash to a Democrat in the White House, kind of the beginnings of the Tea Party movement, and maybe we'll see something like that this year, but it's obviously you can't, uh, you can't count on that. And I just, you know, there are, some, there are some losses you hate, there are some losses that make you, you know, I think I just find the idea of four more years of Terry McAuliffe being the governor of Virginia, Greg, I think I just find it dispiriting. Uh, let's go on to our crazy one, Greg. I can't, I can't think about this any longer. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter Podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms, and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter Podcast. Subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, crazy martini time. It is uh, Joe Biden is putting together his cabinet. Yesterday, he officially announced Javier Becerra, which he called, uh, what do you call him, Javier Bacaria for the Department of Health and Education or something like that. But he's also got uh, people in mind for other positions. One of them is General Lloyd Austin to be the next Secretary of Defense. But Lloyd Austin uh, retired from the Army relatively recently. And so that would require, if he were to be confirmed, uh, a waiver uh, approved by both chambers of Congress to waive the seven years that need to take place between a person's retirement from the military and uh, taking on a job as a civilian leader of the Pentagon. It's only happened twice in history, General Marshall in 1950, and of course, General Mattis uh, as the first Trump defense secretary in 2017. And so, Jim, there are reasons to like or not like Austin based on his military uh, performance. What I found curious was how, I don't know if it was uh, in Biden's statement or somebody else saying, well, this guy's the guy that led the, the, the drawdown of U.S. troops in Iraq, and it was the original leader in the fight against ISIS. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's not convincing, really. Um, <laughs> the early stages of that did not go well at all. But the, the issue that has a lot of Democrats in the Senate riled, surprisingly, and a lot of people saying, I am not going to go in this direction. They don't want to support uh, the waiver 
that would make General Austin eligible to be the next Secretary of Defense. And so right now it's looking like if it's going to happen, he's going to need a lot of Republican support, which is kind of curious here. So uh, what do you make of the, the controversy and the possible selection of Austin here? Sure. Uh, Greg, one thing to start is um, yesterday, my very distinguished colleague, Kevin Williamson, wrote an editorial entitled No to General Austin which he basically makes the argument. And I get, it feels like Kevin and I disagree like once a leap year and it's a leap year. So this is our, our one case. And it's not even that I, I love Lloyd Austin or I think he's a terrific choice and he may well be the wrong choice, but I'm not, I find the criteria odd and kind of to walk people through it. 1947, the National Security Act kind of reorganized the entire structure of the Department of Defense and who answers to what after World War II. And they had in there, it says, a person who may not be appointed as Secretary of Defense um, within seven years after relief from active duty as a commissioned officer of a regular component of an armed force. And actually, the original version was 10 years. 2008, Congress changed it to seven years. Okay. Um, if you want to put somebody there who's been in active duty and wearing the uniform within seven years, you need a waiver from Congress. Congress has granted two waivers, one for George Marshall in 1950 and another for James Madison in 2017. This deadline strikes me as sort of, our, it's there. I, I don't you know, argue that there's a uh, legal or con a constitutional reason it should not, that it, it you know, violates the constitution or anything. You know, if, if Biden wants to nominate uh, Austin, and it looks like he is, and he wrote an op-ed explaining why he did, he's going to have to get a waiver. I, I think, though, that the, I, the people who are saying, well, I think Austin is a terrific choice, but he's not within this seven-year window, therefore I cannot support him. I, I don't quite get the logic of that, because I guess the idea is that this, this seven-year period is what is needed to, to make you a civilian. Except the thing is, he, he left, you know, uh, Austin left has been a civilian, has been outside the military for four years, eight months, and four days. I looked it up specifically. So the argument of a whole bunch of folks is that Austin is not acceptable because at this time, but within that seven years, on April 5th, 2023, Austin is outside of the seven-year window and he'd be fine for the job. Now let's face it, he's the same guy, right? He is the same character, same experience, same connections with people in the military, um, I, I just don't quite understand why this seven-year threshold makes him unacceptable in one period and acceptable in the next. If he's the right guy for the job, confirm him. If you don't think he's the right guy for the job, don't confirm him. But what the National Security Act of 1947 says strikes me as a pretty arbitrary one. I think a lot of people, what's driving this is up until Mattis, we hadn't done it since 1950, okay, these exceptions are pretty rare. If you grant the exception for Austin now, well, then you got two exceptions in about a four-year window and people be like, whoa, 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 okay, now it feels like it's, it's happening all the time. Um, but here's the thing. If you don't pick somebody with relatively recent military experience to be Secretary of Defense, that leaves you a lot of, you know, members of Congress, senators, um, you know, pre figures, people who have been in previous administrations. You know, I, I don't know if one set of experience is necessarily head and shoulders better than the other. I, I actually thought Mattis was pretty good considering the circumstances. I don't think, um, you know, that whoever was the most recent uh, chair of the Armed Services Committee in the Senate of the president's party is automatically going to be a better option. Now, there are reasons to object to Austin. Um, I think a lot of folks are going to look at the fact that he's been on the board of directors for Raytheon Technologies, big defense contractor, uh, Tenet Healthcare Corporation, steel manufacturer, Nucor. Uh, and oh, by the way, Greg, he's partner at Pine Island Capital Partners. Are you familiar with that institution? No. 
It is a, quote, an experienced investment team with a group of deeply connected and accomplished former senior government and military officials. Each of our DC partners teams with investment professionals to actively participate in sourcing deals, conducted analyses, winning bids, closing transactions, and directly advising the companies in which Pine Island invests. Greg, what do you hear there? <laughs> I hear a lot of deep staters in there. I was going to say, because I was going to say, Pine, you know where you find Pine Islands? In the swamp. <laughs> I mean, it basically says, look, we're influence peddlers. <laughs> right? We are retired government officials who've decided to cash in. And if your corporation needs to work with the government, we have a lot of distinguished people with a lot of, what's they call it, scrambled egg on their chest, right? A lot of medals, a lot of, a lot of very distinguished folks. And we can talk to Congress to make sure the contract goes the way you want. Um, and if that bothers you, and if that kind of experience for Austin strikes you as something you don't think should be in the Pentagon, then fine. That strikes me as a legitimate reason to vote against him. Um, if you don't like his record in Iraq or another area, fine. That's fine. And I, I, So apparently, Jake Tapper had said that Joe Biden's late son, Bo Biden, had served on the staff of Austin when he was in Iraq. I, I have no doubt Bo Biden at some point probably shared his opinion of Austin with Joe Biden. And I have no doubt that that's probably a factor uh, in the thinking of Joe Biden. That kind of, you know, like every job in Washington has some degree of who do you know and who your friends are and who can kind of, you know, put in a good word for you. Um, but, but some people that may stick in their craw compared to the Michelle Flournoy's of the world or Jay Johnson's or all these other options. So, you know, Look, I, if, I guess my general gist is if, if, if Lloyd Austin is the right guy, judge him on his merits. If he's the right guy for the job, go ahead and put him in the job. If he's not the right guy for the job, don't put him in the job. But I, don't, I think there are a bunch of people who may have preferred Flournoy or may have, for one reason or another, are kind of like hiding behind the National Security Act of 1947 to justify their opposition. Because everybody else insists, beyond this technicality of the old law, there's really no reason to vote against him. And if that's really the case, why should you vote against him? Jim, it's fun to watch the identity factions fight over this nomination. Politico's got a story today titled, Biden's Pentagon Pick Frustrates Women Who Sought a Different History Maker. Subheadline, <laughs> this, this is the second time- You're making the wrong history. <laughs> You're checking the wrong box. We have to have enough women over here. The, the subhead is, this is the second time Michelle Flournoy has been denied the chance to lead the Pentagon. And you're thinking, oh, one of the times Obama picked somebody new, he, I guess he could have chosen her. No, listen to this. Compounding their frustration is the fact that this is the second time Flournoy has been denied the chance to lead the Pentagon. Flournoy was widely seen as Hillary Clinton's pick for defense secretary, had she won the presidential election in 2016, <laughs> but her potential nomination was thwarted by Donald Trump's upset victory. So, Jim, that is some upper-level misogyny there uh, to, mm. to claim that um, she was denied her chance because Hillary Clinton lost. Just because the candidate who would have picked her didn't win the race. I tell you, Greg, if the game hadn't been rained out, I would have hit four home runs. Amazing. Oh, the fighting over stupid things. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about expressvpn.com slash martini to protect your online activity. Also, remember to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We are extraordinarily grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. You can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day, and we'll be back with you Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.